Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, U.S. sales of previously owned homes rose in June for the first time in four months as the economy reopened more broadly from coronavirus-related shutdowns, and buyers took advantage of record low mortgage rates. To get the latest on the housing market, we'd like to turn to Logan uh, Motashami. Logan uh, is independent housing data analyst, also a columnist for The Housing Wire based in Irvine, California. Logan, thanks so much for joining us again. Some pretty solid numbers for the month of June. What do you make of the U.S. uh, market right now? The U.S. housing market is the most outperforming economic sector in the world, and it's already completed a V-shaped recovery, and it still has legs for sales to go higher. And today's, today's number is just the first of many showing that we already hit a bottom uh, in 2020 in terms of demand, and uh, we should be able to have another 5 million-plus uh, total home sale year in 2020. What gives you that confidence, Logan? I mean, if we don't get another round of stimulus, people won't be able to put food on their tables, never mind buy a house. People that are taking the enhanced benefits are renters. And I think this is the one thing that people missed early on. The fear of the virus initially created, you know, four straight continuously down negative year-over-year print and purchase application. And after that four weeks, things started to come back up. And we already have nine straight weeks of positive year-over-year data and purchase application data, it's already hit 11-year high. This is looking out 30 to 90 days. So this today's existing home sales print is just one of, of many to come that show better data, and we already did hit the bottom. So uh, even, if, even if enhanced benefits come down to, let's say, $400, uh, it's not going to impact the housing market because rates are low, and, and the real main, main story is that the U.S. housing market is, is in a period where demographics are the best ever in history, years 2020 to 2024. So demographics and mortgage rates are, are in the benefit of the U.S. housing market. Uh, actually, Paul, if I can just follow there, are you saying then, Logan, that because those 30 million people that were unemployed, and some of them, many of them still are, are renters, that it won't impact the housing market? And if that's what you're saying. How is that? Because they won't be able to pay their rent. Rents will go down. There'll be more supply. People are moving out of urban areas to suburban areas. How is this not all bad for housing in general? Housing is sticky, you know, uh, and it's not the velocity of inventory supplies being created is, is not it's not like the stock market. The stock market margin debt goes up and down with stocks. So it, it takes time. So even if it even if let's say assume a renter who can't pay a rent and the and the and the landlord can't pay his mortgage, that that is a 2021 story. But for for 2020, uh, seasonality has already kicked in. We already hit 11 year highs in purchase application data. As long as purchase application data is flat to positive, we're pretty much we got the V shaped recoveries here. There's not much that could change that. The only thing that I would say that would change everything is if we the surge gets worse and people start to be afraid to, uh, uh, um, to purchase anything anymore, like they did in you know, the first four weeks of the virus. Because, again, housing is primarily demographics and mortgage rates. These, this is time in our U.S. history. It's the best for both right now. So this is why sales have rebounded, and we should have new and existing home sales should easily be over $5 million this year. So talk to us about the demographic story here. Are, are we finally getting the millennials and, and even you know, the Gen Zs, I guess? Are they 
uh, finally coming into the housing market? Millennials were always buying homes. It's just that their biggest housing demographic patch uh, is ages 26 to 32, and the first-time median home buyer age is 33. So we're entering this kind of this five-year phase. And then you have the first-time homeowner who has a lot of equity. If they wanted to move, uh, uh, they have the ability to move. It's all mortgage rates are low. As long as mortgage rates stay below 4.5%, housing seems to do fine. So when it goes above 4.5%, that, that it cools down. So you have the demographics, and then you have – low mortgage rates. Those are the two things that drive to the housing market. Everything else that is said about the housing market for the last, I would say, seven to eight years are speculative. You know, the student loan debt crisis didn't shut off millennials from buying. You know, the affordability crisis didn't shut off housing from buying. We've always been able to keep around six million total home sales. So the question is how much sales can rebound uh, going into the year? Because we've had double-digit year-over-year growth in the last eight weeks, and that looks out 30 to 90 days. So the story's there. You just got to keep an eye on the mortgage purchase application data that comes out every Wednesday. So, so look, Logan, sorry, sorry Paul. Yeah, I was just going to say, Logan, talk to us about the, the mortgage market here. We're just historically low rates, and there's no reason to think that they're going to go up anytime soon, given what we, we hear from the Fed, right? Well, the only way, the only way with long-term rates go up is if the economy in general starts to really grow again, and that probably means that you know uh, jobless claims really start to go down, uh, and the economy is growing, you know, uh, consistently GDP growth. So uh, for 2020, that's that's not going to be the case. And I, I think the credit story is a really important story because I would argue that if Freddie and Fannie were publicly traded companies that didn't that weren't part of the uh, government conservatorship. Uh, housing would have had problems because we, we had a mortgage market meltdown in March, but I would say about four and a half to six point two percent of loans that could be done before March 9th were harder to do because Freddie and Fannie FHA they were able to flow credit, they were able to provide forbearance in a very quick fashion instead of the U.S. government trying to take them back into conservatorships because their stock prices are falling 40 56 percent. Credit was able to flow this year. That is a huge story for the U.S. housing uh, V-shaped recovery this year. Logan, where will be the hot markets in the country come this time next year? You know, everyone's kind of making this city versus suburban uh, mm. story, but this has been happening for years now. People have been, you know, you know, I always say people rent, they mate, they date, they get married three and a half years after marriage, they have kids. And then they move Are we suburbs. that predictable? So, this, <laughs> so, yeah, so this is actually, um, this has been happening for some time. So I would say that suburbs have always been the benefit of, of people getting married and having kids because the cities are very expensive. And the people that own homes in the cities, especially near water, make a lot of money. There's just not a lot of them. So I, I just think that that movement to bigger, cheaper homes in other areas is a good thing. It's been here for, for years, and it is a big story for the housing market because, again, when you have the biggest demographic patch ever in history and you have low mortgage rates, Housing sales should be stable, which wasn't working from a very overheated market. We just had the weakest housing recovery ever recorded in history. So we're not like working from 7 or 8 million total home sales like we were in 2005 at, with higher mortgage rates. So it'll be okay. Uh, housing, will, uh, housing has already recovered. It'll be stable for 2020. We'll deal with the issues in 2021, which, you know, some of these things are the forbearance plans and, and who's going to foreclose or not. But but yeah, 2020, the most outperforming sector in the entire world has been the U.S. housing market. Logan Moltashami, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Logan Moltashami, housing data analyst uh, for 
uh, and he is looking at the housing market very, very strong indeed. The heat is getting turned up on the Bunsen burner that is U.S.-China relations. The latest, out just a few minutes ago, China has vowed retaliation after the U.S. forced the closure of its Houston consulate. That itself was quite the surprise to wake up to this morning. Let's bring in somebody who knows all about diplomatic relations. Nick Wadhams, our national security reporter in Washington, D.C. Nick, how serious is this, you know, sort of popping up of a Houston problem? I mean, it is literally Houston we have a problem. That's right. Uh, I mean, Houston has long been uh, in in the eye of the uh, U.S. government and and the counterintelligence community, FBI. Uh, there have been a, a string of high-profile uh, espionage uh, and intellectual property theft cases uh, that have gone through Houston, um, invi- involving either uh, Chinese students uh, coming there or Chinese Americans who uh, were accused, at least in one case, of funneling uh, cancer research back. Uh, to China. So there's that element. Um, but there's also, uh, you know, the broader context, as you point out, of uh, U.S.-China relations just on this steep uh, downward spiral. Um, and, you know, the inevitable result looks to be that China will uh, almost certainly close a U.S. consulate uh, there. So um, this is by no means the end of the story. All right, Nick, how rare is it for a for the U.S. to close down a, a foreign consulate uh, in the United States? It's it's extremely rare. I mean, okay. this is something that in, in the past had only usually happened in in the most high-profile cases. Uh, Russia is the obvious example. Um, uh, the last time that happened was 2017 when, when the U.S. closed the Russian consulate in, um, in San Francisco. The, the big thing here, though, is that that came after a whole bunch of deliberation, and Russia got a lot of warning, and there was a very clear... Uh, sort of landing ramp uh, to, that led to that point. This one, it looks, according to all the people I'm talking to, uh, that this was really a shot out of the blue. China was caught completely off guard um, with this decision, you know, 72 hours to leave. They're burning documents and trash cans outside the embassy. <laughs> uh, a really different approach um, and, and, and a real surprise uh, to the Chinese. So... You know, the RMB is also, you know, reacting. It's, it's below seven today, which is quite the, you know, the, the move. And it would appear that, you know, this isn't fun anymore. I mean, there were, you know, there was there was a suggestion perhaps in certain circles that, oh, you know, this is all for, for show and that really the US and China it, it would get on fine when it was necessary to. But it doesn't feel like it's for show anymore. No, I think that's true. You know, there's always been this bifurcation in U.S. policy against China, at least under the Trump administration, where the president himself uh, kept talking about his good relationship with Xi Jinping, and he really wanted that trade deal. And there was a lot of evidence that he was essentially putting everything else to the side because he was so focused on the trade deal. Once coronavirus happened, uh, it really changed everything, and it empowered the hawks in the administration. There are a lot of them. There's also bipartisan support for a much tougher stance toward China on the Hill. And the president, who had really been standing in the way and, and suppressing a lot of that, essentially cleared out of the way. You know, he's really blamed China for the coronavirus pandemic. And, and we're coming into an election season where uh, both sides actually are, are blaming China for this thing and accusing the others of not, of not being sufficiently tough on China. So you see this element where essentially the hawks have won the day. And a lot of these ideas that have been percolating for many, many months about how to get tough on China are now being rolled out. So how does this actually play out 
practically on the ground in Houston. Did the folks from the embassy just kind of all hop in their cars for George Bush Airport in Houston and hop the next flight to Beijing? How does this all work? Yeah, I mean, they have 72 hours. They have to leave. Um, they have to go home. Their, their, their status in the U.S. will be illegal if they, if they stay. We've seen this before, um, you know, when it happened with Russia in 2017. There were literally buses of Russian diplomats who were uh, escorted to the airport and put on planes home and then given a hero's welcome when they got back. Um, you know, the bigger question is, um, these are the world's two largest uh, economies. They are utterly interdependent on each other uh, as, as global engines of growth. And there is a lot of talk in the administration about really breaking that bond and decoupling these two economies. Uh, whether, the, whether the Trump administration wants to risk that, given that uh, you know, China is so integral to American economic growth, is a big question. But um, all signs point to uh, there being a lot of force, uh, uh, you know, a lot of persuasive voices in the administration saying they want to do that. I mean, it's completely humiliating for the Chinese to have to do that, right, Nick? I mean, literally the symbolism of that, and you can imagine there'll be pictures of this, if they are like literally burning or, you know, getting rid of documents and getting going outside, you know, almost as if they were being deported by ICE. Yeah, I, you know, it is, it's an extremely humiliating moment, and it's one that China will, will likely reciprocate. I mean... Uh, it, you just it, the, there is a notion in this in this administration that you have to establish reciprocity, and if you uh, push back hard enough on the on on the Chinese in a public way, uh, it, that will deter them from future aggressive action. Uh, diplomats I've spoken to say it's just the opposite. Really, the way you have to do this is uh, do it privately. You don't want to have a, a situation where you're publicly humiliating another country's diplomats. Uh, Chinese officials are especially sensitive to that, given a, a long history of what they see as humiliation at the hands of, uh, of Western powers. Uh, yeah. So it's almost certain we have not seen the end of this. Uh, Nick Wadhams, thank you so much for that. We appreciate that update. Nick Wadhams, foreign policy reporter for Bloomberg News, reporting on this. Uh, the U.S. shutting down uh, the Chinese uh, consulate in Houston, Texas. We'll have more on that story. Well, Judy Shelton, President Donald Trump's pick for Federal Reserve's Board of Governors, cleared a key hurdle to confirmation by winning the approval of a majority on the Senate Banking Committee. Get a sense of what this means. And for the Fed overall, we welcome Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg News, joins us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Michael, give us a sense here. I understand that this pick is particularly contentious. Why is that? Well, there are three charges against Judy Shelton. One is that she's been a longtime advocate of the gold standard, which almost no economists believe is a good idea. The other is that she's been a political opportunist, changing her views on interest rates and on inflation when it looked like those might derail her nomination. And the third is that she is beholden to President Trump rather than to the U.S. economy and would inject politics into Fed deliberations. But Republicans seem to have made their peace with those charges, and they did vote her out on a straight party line vote out of the banking committee. We don't know when the floor vote will be, or even if, given everything else Congress is doing right now, but it appears she would be likely to be confirmed uh, when and if there is a vote. What role does each member of the Fed Board of Governors play, Michael, in the sense of how important will she be? 
It depends on the individual governor. In her case, she'd be one of 12 voters um, and probably have very little influence on the board. Certainly nobody at the Fed likes the gold standard, so that's not even going to be a starter. And if she were to make controversial statements or advocate for something seen as political, she'd be kind of isolated. She could get a lot of headlines by making speeches or writing op-eds or things like that, but her actual influence would be very limited. How, how politicized is the Fed in general, Michael? I don't think we talk about it that often, but maybe a little bit more during this administration. But typically, overall, how politicized is has the Fed been historically? Uh, historically, they've been very apolitical, with the one exception of under President Nixon, when Arthur Burns, as the Fed chairman, agreed to goose the economy to help the Nixon re-election in 1972, <laughs> and that helped uh, touch off the great inflation that uh, Paul Volcker became famous for killing off with a couple of recessions. So the Fed learned a lot from that episode, and they try very hard to stay out of politics. That doesn't mean they don't make decisions that are seen as political but they like to believe that they're making them in the best interests of the economy. Uh, there's an old canard that the Fed doesn't act in election years, but th they do. Uh, I just doubt there'll be any action this year ahead of the election unless they decide to add more stimulus somehow, uh, ramp up QE or something, which I'm sure President Trump would actually like. What is the term for a governor and does it ever get shortened? Uh, yes. Uh, well, governor's terms by law are set at 14 years. However, if you are nominated to replace a governor whose term is not up, you assume the number of years that they have on their term. And Judy Shelton was nominated to Janet Yellen's old seat, actually. So she has three more years uh, before she could be reappointed for another 14-year term. And of course, that would certainly depend on who the president is at the time. How about this Fed nominee, Christopher Waller? What's the story there? Because uh, he was also, yeah. uh, his nomination passed. I think that uh, Wall Street is focusing on the wrong person when they focus on Judy Shelton. They should pay much more attention to the views of Christopher Waller. He's a standard mainstream economist, but very much on the dovish side. He was a professor, uh, has a PhD in economics, and then has been for the past three or four years the research director at the St. Louis Fed. And he played a role in helping uh, develop Jim Bullard, the St. Louis Fed president's view of regime change, that you don't change monetary policy unless the economic regime, the, the status of the economy changes. So he'll be seen as a strong uh, dovish addition to the Fed, and he will probably, because of his mainstream view, uh, or his, his mainstream economic training, put it that way, and his familiarity with the Fed system, have a lot more influence. People on Wall Street will pay a lot more attention to what he says, and uh, others in the Fed will as well. So I, I would focus more on him getting on the board than Judy Shelton, uh, until and unless we see if Donald Trump is reelected and the Senate uh, stays Republican, so she could, in theory, become the next chair if Trump wanted to do that. How do they meet? When do they meet? How does it all happen? Well, they meet uh, every uh, six to every eight weeks. There's, a, there's eight meetings a year and they uh, uh, get together for two days of discussions. Uh, the Fed has uh, is supposed to have seven uh, board governors. They've had five uh, for a very long time, and there are 12 regional Fed Bank presidents. So 19 members of the Open Market Committee, but 12 voted any one time. The New York Fed has a permanent vote, and the other four uh, bank presidents rotate. And uh, at this point, uh, we've had uh, only 10 voters for, well, uh, almost seven years. The last time I can see we had a full complement was 2013. 
So just Mike McKee, real quickly, if can President Biden, if President uh, Vice President Biden, if he were to be elected president next in this election, could he reverse some of these appointments that are being made now? Or does he have to wait to the end of the term? Uh, he would have to wait till the end of okay. the term. You can't fire governors for yep. anything except doing something illegal. <laughs> but as you say, right. this particular term is only three years as opposed to the typical right. 14. So there would be a, an opportunity for the next Senate, I guess, or the next uh, version of Congress to do something. Right. The pre- if, if Biden were elected, you would assume that he probably would not reappoint her. Yeah, yeah. Michael McKee, thank you, as always, uh, again, encyclopedic, this time on the Fed and the economy. Michael McKee is our international economics and policy correspondent here at Bloomberg. And, of course, this on Judy Shelton clearing a key hurdle to confirmation to the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors. She won the approval of a majority on the Senate Banking Committee that obviously has to go to the entire Senate and also the House. But it looks like uh, she is going to be a Fed board member. One of the frequent topics of consideration is whether we're going to see some kind of an economic recovery, when we'll see it, how bad the economy is going to get before we see it. Again, this morning, data showing existing home sales coming in almost as anticipated at a $4.72 million rate in June, up 20.7%. So some of the data, great. Some of the data, not so good. Let's bring in somebody who's been looking at Restoration, restoration for the U.S. economy. Fred Cannon is Global Director of Research at Keith Riet and Woods, which has a new KBW Restoration Index. So, Fred, welcome and tell us why you put this index together and what's actually in it. Um, thanks, Vonnie. It's great to be on. We appreciate being on. And yeah, so basically what we're trying to do here is to, is to look at all this real-time data that we're getting on the economy and put it into an index to see where we are relative to where we were before the, um, the, the pandemic. Because it's, you know, for the market as a whole, and especially for financial stocks, which we specialize in, when we can get back to that previous period of economic activity is key to how much uh, companies can earn, how much banks can uh, credit losses are going to be, and all these factors that drive um, drive stocks. So that's really why we put it together, and we've uh, gathered about 13 different um, indicators that are more real time. They're weekly and daily numbers that we're getting put into this index. All right, so Fred, what's the index been telling you over the last uh, you know four, five, six weeks? Yeah, basically, what it's been showing us is that the uh, speed of the recovery is slowed. Um, you know, essentially last week it actually ticked down slightly. It was down 0.2%, but it was then that was the first downtick that we've seen since April. But really what we've seen recently is, is that these numbers are showing a slow, a slowing of the, um, of the recovery, which really I, I would say is in line with the way most of us feel about what's going on economically and in line with some of the, the slowdown and the opening up of, uh, of many of the states. So, Fred, what will be the leading indicators? I mean, everybody would like a V-shaped recovery, and there's a lot of letters out there, a lot of shapes and so on. But what what will we see and then be able to say, okay, we're on the way back? Well, I think what, what we need to see is we need to see these indicators of um, uh, mobility, um, continue to, to pick up. Those have been continued to be quite low. We need to see, we've seen some pretty good recovery in the consumer um, and the commercial side, uh, but the employment numbers, as, as we all know, continue to be weak. So I think right now what we're looking at in terms of shape, and you can see this in our chart in terms of our index, is it's, it's much more of a swoosh, um, as, uh, as uh, one uh, sporting goods apparel uh, uh, <laughs> logo looks like. And, and the real question, at least in our minds, is you know, what's going on in Congress? 
what's going to happen with um, consumer income uh, when this weekend, when, when a lot of consumers who are unemployed are going to quit getting that extra $600 a week. So, Fred, you know, KBW, you guys have, you know, really specialized in the financial services industry and are really leading uh, thought leaders there. What are you seeing out of the bank earnings that we had last week and we're still getting here? What are you hearing from some of the banks as it relates to their outlook for the economy? Uh, you know, their outlook for the economy has um, dissipated a bit recently. I think especially even as, as soon as a month ago when we came into the earnings, they were into the reports, they were still pretty optimistic. I think what we've seen is they continued to post large provisions for future losses, even though there's few losses coming through. Um, they've actually seen some good news on terms of the um, deferrals of loans. Uh, a lot of folks have been able to pay those. But there's a lot of nervousness right now, especially on the consumer side, where you have a situation where the savings rate in America has gone up significantly as consumers have used these um, payments from the government to get a handle on their debt. But this next phase four, again, is something that I think um, is universally of some concern. The, the good news on the um, financial side is that the capital markets, is, as you know, um, which you, you both are watching on a, on a real-time basis, has been quite robust, and, and that piece of the financial business has, has done well. We saw so many banks put away so many reserves. Will they be necessary? Um, well, I think we can all say we hope not. Um, but we have to remember they have put in these big reserves. Um, there's an accounting changes that, that required uh, banks to be more forward-looking than they would have in the past. Um, and that's why we're seeing these big reserves even before we see um, losses. Now, we do think there will be, um, when we look at the stress in small business um, and on the consumer, unless there's this continued um, kind of CARES Act level of um, support, you know, we have to expect some bankruptcies and other issues to, to pick up. Um, hopefully the good news is, is if we see even um, a, a, a U-shaped recovery or kind of not necessarily a V-shape, that the reserves that have been put up in the first half of this year should get these um, financials through this crisis without having to, to raise capital or, or cut dividends further. So, Fred, just quickly, the, the banks have been beating up the stocks. Um, where do the good folks at KBW, where do you guys see some opportunity? Uh, well, I, a couple areas uh, we see. Number one is, that, you know, selectively we think some of the, um, the banks, especially those, you know, that are very strong in the capital markets, um, uh, can continue to do well. We think the, the, the highest quality banks are in a good position to get through this. Um, J.P. Morgan, um, and we are recommending Goldman Sachs based on the capital markets activity. We also think that um, that folks should look over to Europe. Those banks over there have been um, beat up much more than the U.S. banks, and they're actually seeing um, better uh, indicators of, uh, of a recovery than we are. Right. Um, and also, we don't have the you know the interest rates have come down significantly in the U.S. And as, as you know, I think yep. bond yields are below 60 basis points today. And that's a, that's a tough environment for, um, for U.S. Yeah. Hey, Fred, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your thoughts uh, on the KBW Restoration Index. We'll be following that. Fred Cannon, Global Director of Research at Keith Bruett and Wood, uh, based in New York City. Again, the KBW Restoration Index, trying to get a handle on the recovery uh, of the U.S. economy uh, on this side of the pandemic. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.